Hey friends, you are listening to the Grace Story Church podcast. To learn more about Grace Story and how you can get plugged into our community, visit gracestory.church. guest speaker today, Mr. Lyle from Rocket Ship Church, is that right? Up in Goodlitzville. Um, Ryan is at CFK camp this week along with uh, Nick and Kurt, so um, so we're making do, and that's why I think we're so empty today, because when one family leaves, we drastically dwindle. Um, so... Uh, Lyle's going to be preaching today out of Second Chronicles chapter 7, verses 1 through 15. As soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. When all the people of Israel saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed down with their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshiped and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Then the king of all of then the king and all the people offered sacrifices before the Lord. King Solomon offered as a sacrifice twenty two thousand oxen and a hundred and twenty thousand sheep. So the king and all the people dedicated the house of God. The priests stood at their posts, the Levites also, with the instruments for music to the Lord that King David had made for the giving thanks to the Lord, for his steadfast love endures forever. Whenever David offered praise by their ministry, opposite them the priests sounded trumpets and all of Israel stood, and Solomon consecrated the middle of the court that was before the house of the Lord, For there he offered the burnt offerings and the fat of the peace offerings, because the bronze altar Solomon had made could not hold the burnt offering and the grain offering and the fat. At that time, Solomon held, held the feast for seven days and all Israel with him, a very great assembly from Labo Hamath to the brook of Egypt. And on the eighth day, they held a solemn assembly, for they had kept the dedication of the altar seven days and the feast seven days. On the 23rd day of the seventh month, he sent the people away to their homes, joyful and glad of the heart of heart for the prosperity that the Lord had granted to David and to Solomon and to Israel, his people. Thus Solomon finished the house of the Lord and the king's house. All that Solomon had planned to do in the house of the Lord and in his own house he successfully accomplished. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon in the night, and he said to him, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a house and sacrifice. When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or command the locusts to devour the land, or send pestilence among my people, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sins and heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayer that is made in this place. It's a privilege to be with you today. Um, I was thinking back to last year, the first time I preached here was also the first Sunday of Lent, and I asked Coat 
if he just decided he didn't like Lent a lot and just left every year at this time. And he claims it's unintentional, but we, you can ask him that when he gets back. Um, we, uh, this past summer, I had the chance to do something for the first time with my family. So my son was interning in North Carolina, and we drove over to see him around um, 4th of July, around that time of year, and decided... My wife is a little bit of an adventurer, a little bit of a spontaneous adventurer, and wants to cram um, something into every day. So I'm a guy that if we go on vacation, I'm okay sitting in the hotel, going down to the beach. We like the beach, sitting there, not doing anything. My wife's got plans for the whole time. And so she said, hey, I just discovered that Washington, D.C. is only a five-hour drive only from North Carolina where we had already driven for 10 hours. We can make it, if we get up early in the morning, we can make it just spend one night. And she had this whole thing planned out where we were going to see every possible free museum in Washington, D.C., which you've ever been there is all of them, except for the Museum of the Bible, which cost about $450. But that doesn't make any sense. Everything else is free. And so we got up at 4 a.m. Eastern from North Carolina, loaded my family, I have four kids, loaded the six of us into a vehicle that's meant for um, four or five average-sized people. I have a son that's 6'5", and another one that is 6'1", and we went to Washington. And it was a really cool experience. It was only 125 degrees. And we walked about 20 miles a day, but there was fascinating things that we saw. One of my favorite places was the Library of Congress. I'm a little bit of a book nerd, and just seeing all of that was really cool. And they had a special exhibit there that were on the greatest photographs in American history. And just looking at some of those iconic images that we've seen. One of the ones that really struck me is one you may have seen or may or may not remember, but it's a picture, it's black and white, it's taken in the 1930s. It's a mother with a worn face bent over and it's in the midst of the Great Depression and the Dust Bowl that was happening in the Midwest. I don't know if you read much about that or not. They had a plaque there that gave some explanation, and it was just fascinating to see that for 10 years in a row, Midwest got less rain than their yearly average. Four of the worst drought years in the history of the Midwest happened in a seven-year period. They had no rain for periods of time. It was so bad that storms began to brew that weren't rain at all, but were dust storms that would envelop entire towns and destroy places. Some of it was the drought. Some of it was that they had been irresponsible in their farming methods because they just ran everybody out west trying to settle out there, had farmed for years, had loosened the topsoil to the point that when it did dry out, it just flew away. At the beginning of this year, actually the week in between Christmas and New Year's. I began to reflect on the past year in our lives, 
And there were definitely high points and some great moments, but 2023 was a really rough year for our family. Susan and I both lost our dads. My dad passed away last June. Coat was gracious enough on a last-minute notice to come preach for me that week. And then my wife's dad, my dad had battled cancer multiple times. It was a long, drawn-out illness. Susan's dad played golf on a Wednesday in December, 18 holes, and died on Thursday morning, suddenly. A couple of other things that happened in just our family and revolved around. And when I was thinking about, okay, where am I spiritually? Where are we spiritually? Where is our church spiritually? I just thought a little bit about the Dust Bowl. And that there are times in my life, and 2023 was one of them going into this year, when I thought, man, if there was a drought map of my spiritual life, it would be lit up. Because it's just dry at times. Now, the good thing is, I can tell you guys that because you're not my church, right? If a preacher gets up and tells you, man, I'm dry spiritually, like, well, what's going on? What's wrong? We got to fix it, right? And I began to think about what happens in our lives when it's just dry. The Bible talks a lot about our lives being like well-watered gardens, that that's the goal. It uses all kinds of agricultural imagery about what it means to be healthy and vibrant. We have lost a lot of that because we live in a society that no longer depends on agriculture like my grandparents did, my great-grandparents that ran a family farm. And so we miss a lot of that, but it talks about how we have to cultivate and prepare and be ready for when God comes like the rain into our lives. And so as I was thinking about that and what my life would be in 2024 and about our church, I'm not one of these um, word of the year guys. You know what I mean by that? People are like, what's your word for the year, right? Uh, nothing against you if that's who you are. That's just never been me. I'm not one of them. I'm just not claim a word for the year. And for whatever reason that week, I just felt the Lord say very specifically to me that 2024 would be a year of renewal for your church, and for your life. And he sent me to 2 Chronicles chapter 7. Ben just read it for us. There's a part of that passage that you've almost all heard multiple times. 2 Chronicles 7, 14, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face, turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will heal their land. But what fascinated me about 2 Chronicles chapter 7 is what's surrounding that verse. Because what you see happening here at the beginning of chapter 7 in verse 1, you have the dedication of the temple happening. Solomon has finished this great priestly prayer, this kingly priestly prayer, and asked the Lord to bless this place. And it says that the glory of the Lord so filled the temple that they could not even go in the doors. You just think about how long the Israelites had wanted a place where they could know that this is our place to come and encounter the living God. 
From the very first moment that God created Adam and Eve, he was living amongst them, walking amongst them in the cool of the day. They were able to have fellowship with him. But the moment sin entered our world, that broke. And humanity has searched again and again for ways that we can be in fellowship with the Lord. And the Lord provided certain ways. In the Passover, when they escaped, he gave them a cloud to protect them from the sun. Gave them a fire to, to guide them by night. When they made it into the, on the other side and got, the, ta got the, the tablets and the law of the Lord, they were told about the tabernacle that was to be this portable dwelling place of God because they were going to be a people on a journey. And that journey would take a long time. And that they were to be able to have the things of God and where God's promised presence had been was to be with them. And when they got to a place where they could settle and they could have their own land, then God would have them build a permanent place. And so they get there and it takes a few generations. David couldn't build it because he was a man of blood. And Solomon does what his dad did not do. And it is the crowning achievement of his life. But until the moment that God's glory descended, they weren't sure whether God was going to bless what they had done. And so imagine, they're there and they're prepared and they're ready and they pray and the glory of the Lord descends. The manifest presence of God indwells a building to the point that they cannot get in the doors. And the people on the outside, can you imagine if next week you showed up and you couldn't get in the doors because the glory of God had descended? It says the people outside, all they knew to do was to get on the ground, face to the ground, and worship. And then they had a party for seven days. And on the eighth day, Solomon sends everyone home. Now, I don't know if you've ever been in a place like this. Maybe it wasn't a spiritual experience. Maybe it was a, something you did rewarding at work. Maybe it was something you did in family life. Maybe it was a big project that you finally got done. But in one of those places where your body just kind of relaxes. Like, that's done. I can only imagine that that's what Solomon was feeling that night as he laid down in bed. He sent everybody home. The temple is built. He has done everything he was supposed to do. The glory of God has descended upon the place. They have partied for seven days. He has sent them home. He lays down in his bed. And I think part of what's on his mind in that moment is just a deep exhale of breath. And then part of him is like, now what? How do we top that? Like, you ever had one of those experiences you're like, well, it's downhill from here. Can't get better than that. And God comes to him in that moment. And one of the most famous verses in the Bible that often gets used in ways it was never meant to be, God basically says, when drought comes in your life, or in my nation, or to my people. Verse 13. If I shut up the sky so there is no rain, or if I command the grasshopper to consume the land, or if I send pestilence on my people. Now, we have to understand that 
a better translation of that or to understanding of the word if there is, not like in this possible world that is out there, what it really means that if there is, when. Because our people, my people are not going to be faithful to me. He tells them that in the beginning. If you'll be faithful to me, I'll never do anything. If you'll follow me, if you'll keep my commands, if you'll only follow me and no other gods, this will be my promise to you. But he says, but that's not going to happen. And so what he says to Solomon is, when my people walk away, forget the glory of my name, forget what I've commanded them to do, don't do what I've told them to do, and I stop the rain and send pestilence and dust bowl-like storms. When that happens. If my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their evil ways, then I will hear from heaven, forgive their sin, and heal their land. When your spiritual life is parched. When it feels as if you're walking through the motions and it's a rut and it doesn't feel like the Lord's presence is there. When you're in the midst of taking care of your kids day after day after day. And, the, the, you know, we have, we have four. The, my youngest is now almost a teenager. Um, but at one time we had a lot of little kids. And that is physically exhausting. Can I get an amen in the house of the Lord? Right? Just always doing stuff. Right? Tying shoes. Getting sippy cups. Getting regular cups. Cleaning up spills because you forgot to get the right cup. Right? Getting into the car. I was like, what's that that's rolled under the seat? Oh, that's a cup full of milk. Awesome. Right? It's just physically exhausting. Here's what I found out about teenagers. It's exhausting. It's just emotionally exhausting. Why did you post that? What did you mean by that? Why are you so sarcastic this afternoon? When are you going to be home? Where are you going to be? Who are you going to be with? Why are you going? Why did they say this on social media about you? Why did so-and-so's mom call me last night and say that y'all are not having a good relationship lately? What, what, you've got a girlfriend? Oh, you don't have anyone anymore? What happened there? Was it good? like just emotionally exhausting. And in the midst of that, hypothetically speaking, of course, in the midst of that, it's easy to dry up spiritually. When that happens, if my people, that's us, God's people, often we look for the answers to why the world is going the way it is outside the church when the answer is inside. If my people, who are called by my name, gives us four steps, humble ourselves. Proverbs 6.16 says there are six things that the Lord detests, six things he sees as abominations. Number one on that list is pride. It's there intentionally because we believe that everything in life is about us. And what often hinders us from having the Lord renew us, refresh us, is that we simply don't ask. Or we think we can make it work on our own or we'll get ourselves out of this mess. 
one of the most famous books of the last 30 years, starts out with one line. It's not about you. We have to learn to lose the right to be right. We have to quit trying to save face all the time and keep our reputation intact that when it comes to our relationship with the Lord, there is no proper position other than humility. Every time someone in Scripture comes in contact with some sort of theophany, appearance of God in any way, when they see who Jesus is in reality, every single one of them gets on their faces and says, I'm not worthy to be here. When the transfiguration happens, they say, can we build some tents up here so we can be protected? When Isaiah sees the Lord high and lifted up, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. When Jesus gets up out of a nap because the waves and the winds are buffeting and the disciples are all concerned that they're going to die, and he gets up on the top of the boat and he says, be quiet, and the waves all stop and they just go, who is this? They bow and worship him. When we come into the presence of God, the only proper position we can be in is flat on our face. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, intimate conversation with God in humility. Here's the truth. God is not intimidated, surprised, or caught off guard by anything we have to say. He knows the thoughts of our mind before we think them. He knows the words that we speak before they're on our tongue. He knows everything about us. He is not going to be surprised that you're struggling spiritually. He's not going to go, oh, I didn't know. Man, that caught me off guard. He's completely in the know. He's waiting for you to agree with him. By the way, the word confession literally means to agree with, to say alongside of. And it's just saying, God, man, I need you, and I'm hurting, and I'm dry. And then he says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face. The idea behind seek my face there is literally to go after with everything you have. It is to pursue. It is to have a um, focus that is primarily set on the Lord. It is to seek first the kingdom of God and everything else will take care of itself. It's like the psalmist who said, like a deer panteth for the water, so my soul longs after you. It is a desire that the only thing in life that I have to have is you, Lord. That's it. If I have you and nothing else, that is more than enough. And if I have everything else and not have you, then I don't have anything. In the book of Hosea, there's a place, Hosea, one of my favorite books in, in the Old Testament, where the prophet is told to go and marry a woman of less than stellar reputation. That's his command from God, Hosea, go marry a prostitute. And he does. And then he has children with her, and he names his children as a symbol of what the Lord tells him. Two of the children's names are not mine and unloved. Now, we leave them in there, and they're lo uama, lo ami. But when they're on the playground and they're talking to their friends, they would say, hey, what's your name? My name is unloved. My name is not mine. Or when you're introducing your kids, can I introduce you to my kids? This one here is not mine, and this one is unloved. 
and it's a symbol of the way that people were treating the Lord. In chapter 5, God lays out and says, this is it. This is after Hosea has been called by God to go and buy back his wife, who has gone back into her life, Gomer, his wife. And he says, in chapter 5, God kind of lays out these conditions and says, this is what we have to do. This is who you are. This is what you've done. Now you have a choice. And in chapter 6, verse 1, Hosea says, come, come, let us return to the Lord. And then it says, he has struck us down, but he will heal us. He has wounded us, but he will take care of us. And it says in there that we are to return to the Lord. We'll talk about repentance in a minute. And we are to strive after him. Single-minded focus going after the Lord. If my people, called by my name, will humble themselves, pray, seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways. Those four points are basically the four points of every prophet in the Bible. Hey, 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 you're doing this wrong. Hey, you're over here doing some stuff. It's wrong. Quit it and come back to the Lord. Repentance, turning, not just conviction, not just confession, not just contrition. It is a change of heart. It is a new direction. It is a continual cycle of growth. True repentance, true turning has three elements. First of all, there is the realization of what sin truly is in our lives. We never gloss it over. We don't point at other people's sin. We realize what's going on in our lives. This is the first Sunday of Lent. And part of what Lent is about as we prepare ourselves for the glorious news of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a marching towards an understanding of why he had to go to the cross on Friday. And the reason he had to go to the cross on that Friday was because of the sin in our lives. And understanding that the sin of the world placed upon Jesus, while yes, was the totality of sin of the world, but it was also the totality of my sin, and my sin is enough to send him there. And sometimes we excuse sin and look to sin and say, you know what? That's just how it was made. Or, you know, I've worked in church as a pastor now for well over 20 years, almost 25 years. And sometimes you'll hear people, well, that's just how they are. He's always been like that. And we'll forgive sin, family members, and our own lives. That's, how, that's just how it was made. That's how it was raised. Instead of understanding the seriousness of it, we repent when we recognize the reality of sin. And secondly, not only do we recognize it, we are sorrowful at the depths of our soul over it. Genuinely sorry for our sin. Not the consequences of our sin, not what may happen because of our sin, but because of our sin. And then, true repentance involves a change of behavior. If my people, when I shut the heavens, when it feels like there's a spiritual drought in your life, when it feels like you're drying up inside and you're just caught in the emotions of every day, in the relationships of every day, in the actions of every day. One of the things that's fascinating to me about the Dust Bowl era is they were so busy trying to do the things that they thought that they had to do that they didn't even realize they were laying the groundwork for a major storm because their busyness had not allowed them to go deep with their understanding of the land. 
And I just wonder how many times in my life I am creating all the conditions for a storm in my life because I'm just busy doing stuff without understanding the damage that's happening in my own life. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, forgive their sin, and heal their land. Verse 15 is one of the most comforting prayers or one of the most comforting statements from God to Solomon in the whole book. And it's true for us even more so because of Jesus. God says to Solomon, my eyes will now be open and my ears attentive to prayer from this place. I don't know what your spiritual drought map would look like. You may be well-watered garden that looks awesome. But you may be spiritually dry and nobody else here knows it right now. I would just say that as you humble yourself, pray, seek his face, turn from your wicked ways and watch God work. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we're thankful for the promises of your word that remind us of how good it is that you are a good God. And that even when we walk away or cause our own problems, our own spiritual dryness, Lord, or when we do things that cause you to dry up the heavens, Lord, that you are willing and able Lord, more than willing, you are wanting to heal us and to send us good things. Lord, I pray that in all of our lives in this room, that when it gets spiritually dry, we'll look to you for rain. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thank you for listening to the Grace Story Church podcast. For more resources and information on our church, visit gracestory.church.